I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a memoir of an undocumented childhood with Chan Julie Wang. And her new book, Beautiful Country. Chen Julie Wang is a graduate of Yale Law School and Swarthmore College and is managing partner of a law firm dedicated to advocating for education, disability and civil rights. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Bloomberg, among other major US publications. And today we're going to be talking about Chen Julie's debut book, which is Beautiful Country, a memoir of an undocumented childhood. Chen Julie, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, tell us then how you would describe Beautiful Country. The book, not the beautiful country. (laughs) The place. (laughs) Appreciate your clarification. Beautiful Country is a memoir that focuses on my years of living as an undocumented child in New York City. It follows me from when my parents and I arrived here in New York in 1994 through the first five years of our time as new immigrants and our time grappling for the first time with poverty and being undocumented and having to work in physical and menial labor. Um, It really is, as I envision it, a trip and train ride through my childhood. My hope was that readers would experience reading the book as if they had embarked on a train and are able to look out the window at some very familiar terrain because all childhoods are similar in some ways, while also being able to see some new landscape that they otherwise would not have access to. And at its heart, I see beautiful country as a tribute to the strength, resilience, and joys of immigrants, of immigrant families, and immigrant children. And I guess we should mention what the title means as I um, preempted it. Sure. Beautiful Country is a direct translation of the Chinese word for America, which is Mei. Uh, Mei Guo, first character Mei is beautiful and Guo means country. And tell me about, as you just said, it's a relatively you know short period of your life. You've chosen to focus on a relatively short period of your childhood. And obviously the book is told as if from a child's perspective. So tell us about that decision. I really wanted to allow readers to feel like they were experiencing everything through my eyes, 
So the book opens with pinyin, which is phonetic Chinese, scattered throughout. And that pinyin Chinese seeps out as I become more fluent in English. So it is meant to mimic the experience of uh, learning English as a second language and then adopting it as your primary language. And in that sense, I also wanted the voice, the narrator's voice to grow as the book progressed down to the things she noticed in in the beginning of the book, the narrator is um, roughly ages five to seven. And she notices things like toys and bikes and um, everything is relayed from her height level. So she can't see above counters, for instance. And as she gets older, her concerns and worries change and morph as her circumstances and her maturity grows. And I really wanted this close-up insight and an intimate view into the immigrant experience. And that certainly would have been many, many, many more pages had I decided to extend the narrative. And without giving anything away, I'm fortunate in that my life has a natural narrative arc within these five years that seem to frame the book quite well. Tell us something about your memories of China before you left. So you come over to the US when you're seven. So obviously, you know, you spent a number of years in China before you came. What are your sort of most vivid memories? China comes to me in memories of warmth and joy. My favorite moments were Sundays when my mother would bring me to her parents' house where her younger brother's still lived for a time and we would all make dumplings together and have dumpling competitions to see who could eat the most, the fastest. And that's the experience is really representative of my time in China. I was surrounded by love and family and friends and belonging. Never questioned if I fit in. I looked like everyone else, never thought about what it might be like to be hungry, what it might be like to be found out in a country and be removed from that country. And so all of that uh, very much changed overnight when I got off the plane at JFK airport and realized that my old life, my, my life in China may well never be restored to me. And so tell us something of your parents' background in China. Your mother comes from a more privileged background than your father did, although by the time the story starts, they have both carved out professional careers for themselves. They are both working as professors in China. Indeed, your your mother has relatively recently published some textbooks at the time. Obviously, they have reasons why they want to leave, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But tell us something about how your parents grew up in China? Both my parents grew up, well, both were born at the very beginning of the Cultural Revolution in China. And for those not familiar, the Cultural Revolution was a period of 10 years from 1966 to 1976 when Chairman Mao pretty much incited Chinese citizens to revolt against existing structures, persecuted intellectuals, doctors, lawyers, anyone who was very much a scholar who could criticize what Chairman Mao and his new governmental regime was doing. People were motivated and incentivized to report on their neighbors, their family members for anything that might be quote unquote anti or counter revolutionary. My father was born the youngest of seven in North China, a little bit further from where my mother was born, about two hours by a train. And when he was six years old, his second oldest brother was 18. And his brother saw what Chairman Mao was doing in part because 
they had a tradition in that family, having come from long dissident blood, of reading banned books, especially books from the Western culture. And my uncle saw that Chairman Mao was really pitting people in China against each other to distract from what he was trying to do, which was to accumulate power and centralize his power. The very forces that he was telling others to revolt against were the forces that he aimed to take over and install a not very much different government. So my uncle, in his wisdom and bravery, and some might say foolishness, wrote a paper setting all this out, pointing out historical instances of this happening in other countries of calling upon his peers to see through it because Chairman Mao really used the youths of China, the Red Guards who were teenagers around my uncle's age to set this movement and this revolution forward. Uh, It was very quickly determined that it was my uncle who had written this piece and disseminated it broadly and widely in his village. My uncle was imprisoned, tortured, starved, and my father would then grow up being labeled a counter-revolutionary, being labeled treasonous and a traitor. He went to school and was made to stand up in front of the classroom while his teachers and classmates berated him. No matter how well he did or how hard he studied, he was never able to get good grades because a counter-revolutionary and dissident was not allowed to succeed. But somehow, despite all of this, he worked extremely hard and became a professor of, of English literature. It took him a little longer in school than others. But eventually he made it out to the town where I was born, the city really, Shijiazhuang, where my mother was living. And at that point, my mother was a math professor. Her parents and her father especially was fairly high up in the government at that point. And he had been in the government throughout, which meant that during the revolution, there were a lot of persecutions against him. He was removed to the countryside and forced to do physical labor, which meant that my mother spent a lot of her childhood raising her younger brothers. But by the time I was born, my parents had worked to a a very privileged place in life where my father was teaching English literature, Dickens, Twain, and my mother was really on the forefront of developing computer science. I remember being really in a carriage, being very little and sitting in, in a room with her as she sat before this giant black screen, one of the very first supercomputers typing away code in neon text and the beeping of the keyboard. Those um, classroom environments, those lecture hall and academic office environments were very much the background of my earliest memories in life. And so we know what the name for America is in China, quite literally beautiful country. What is the image of America in China at that time? So what is it that appeals to your parents about a possible life in America? For my father, America was always the beacon of democracy and free speech and accountable government. He had read so many American books and British books as well, but in all of the history that he learned. So he had books in in his floorboards growing up. So he had gotten a lot of books on the black market and read about the history of America and how it came to be in this idea of a democracy, this um, really governmental experiment. And So for as long as he could remember, America was this beacon of light. So for him, there was no other place he would have gone. As much as he was running from China, he was very much running toward that idea of America that seems so common abroad, especially in in third world and developing countries. And 
I mean, we would soon come to find that um, the vision that is out in the world is, it does not exactly match up with the realities here on the ground. Tell us about your first memories of landing at JFK, then your sort of first impressions of coming to this supposed beautiful country. So my father had arrived two years before my mother and I did. He wasn't sure if he was going to come here temporarily and then return. So we stayed and and finally it came to be that my mother realized that he might not come back at all. So, so we followed him. And when we got our bags and walked out the door and I saw my father waiting there, I remember thinking at first that can't be him. I know it's him, but that can't be him because he looks so small and tired and scared. And my father, to me, before he left, was a thousand feet tall. He was giant. He was godlike. He had everything under control. He was eloquent and powerful in front of the lecture hall. And here he was, this tiny man in pretty tattered clothing. But that was him. And it wasn't long before I noticed my mother changing. So I think all of us can remember that time in our childhood when our parents were godlike and all-knowing. And as long as they were around, we didn't have to worry about anything. That was very much the case for me until we got to New York and out of nowhere, I I saw my parents starting to look over their shoulders, being extremely nervous and anxious and fearful of everything. And that became my emotional reality. I realized that we were, there was something wrong with us, that we were not allowed here. And therefore I had to be scared. I also noticed when I got off the plane that there were so many people of different skin colors and eye colors and appearances that I did not know existed until we left. I looked like everyone else around me. Everyone else looked like me. I figured there was one kind of person ever. On TV, sometimes there would be, I would see white people. And sometimes my father would bring home friends who were visiting from England or America. But I just figured those, you know, those were the only people in the world who were white and had blue eyes. And when we got off the plane, I realized, oh no, now I am in the minority. And with that comes a lot of changes There were racial slurs thrown at us. Um, There was this messaging that there was something wrong with the way we looked, the way we spoke. And I quickly learned to pick up that shame, both from my race and um, our status, which I didn't quite understand at the time. But to counteract all of that, I remember being in the cab on the way back to our new apartment. My father had saved up for weeks, probably months, to be able to bring us back in a yellow cab. And looking out the window and seeing the lights of New York City, the lights of bridges and buildings, it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. There have been lights in Beijing and I'd seen those, but there was something special and spectacular about this new background. And I then remembered people saying in China, both America was a place where everyone was poor and starving and a place where it was built on gold. There was gold on the streets. And almost immediately, I started seeing both of those Americas in my days. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Chen Julie Wang, and we're talking about her book, Beautiful Country, a memoir of an undocumented childhood. And Chen Julie, you vividly describe the boarding house that you stay in for the first period of your arrival in America. Tell us about this place. It was really, I guess, maybe what um, a lot of people think of as a brownstone from the outside, except much smaller and narrower and dirtier. Um, Inside each of the rooms of the building had been broken up into an individual apartment for one immigrant family. And throughout the whole building, there were, I believe, two bathrooms that all of the families, four or five shared, and one kitchen that all of us shared. The very top floor, I remember, was rented out by one wealthier, relatively speaking, wealthier family. They were able to pay for to have the whole room. And so they had their own bathroom. I remember thinking about that and seeing them and thinking, wow, they are so rich. Um, the rest of us kind of shared our space, learned to deal with the thin walls. And I, for the first time in my life, lived in one single room with my parents, with my bed, a few feet from there. So I could reach out my mother certainly could reach out her arm and and touch my bed. And as I got bigger, that became the case for me as well. And um, there were cockroaches everywhere. Um, I remember playing this game before I learned to be afraid of cockroaches. I would turn off the light and hear the cockroaches cover the walls. And then all of a sudden I would turn on the light and all of the cockroaches would disappear. So those cockroaches kind of became my friends. There was a backyard though, which is actually very rare in New York City. And I remember loving that yard, the leaves, the grass. There were a lot of stray cats who lived there because our little landlady loved to put out bowls of rice and some meat for them. So the cats that were there became very quickly also my friends in addition to the cockroaches. And at the very back was a little Buddhist shrine that our landlady had set up for her family. And 
in that shrine was a little television. And that would be my first foray into American media because my parents and I could not afford a television. And it was there that I met The Simpsons for the first time, Puzzle Place, so many of the cartoons and shows that would inform my very early years and my early understanding of what it was like to be in America and American. You talk about some of the horrible menial jobs that your parents have to do with a game, a reminder that both of your parents were professors and now you know your father at the beginning finds himself working in the laundry you talk about the sweatshop that your mother worked in for a, for a period of time but I'd like to talk about the um the sushi kitchen that she works in for a period of time yeah it was very confusing for me as a child to see my parents go from intellectual labor to physical labor. I didn't quite understand what was going on. For me, work meant being in an office or a lecture hall. And all of a sudden here was my mother sitting in front of a sewing machine or in the sushi factory. And I didn't quite know what to make of it. And my parents, despite everything they were dealing with, really tried to make everything seem like a game to me. And because it was physical labor, it was that much more convincing that, oh, maybe if I snip this loose piece of thread in the sweatshop. This is a hide and seek game that I can keep playing. But the terror and extreme conditions of physical labor did not really truly dawn on me until I went to the sushi factory one day with with my mother. She had been working there, I think for a few days, if not weeks. And I had been going to school and kind of fending for myself after school because she really did not want to bring me there. But one weekend she had no choice. There was nowhere to put me. So I went with her. And the thing I remember, still remember and can feel in my bones from that day is the cold. She stood in ice water essentially for 14, 15 hours at a time. Everyone in that room was wearing these blue plastic cloaks that were meant to cover your everyday clothes, keep them from getting dirty from the fish and the smell, but the cloak was paper thin and the entire room did not have any source of heat because uh, if you're processing raw salmon, you're meant to keep it at very cold conditions. And when my mother was working, this job happened to be over the early winter and then into the dead of winter and then spring. And the minute I walked in, my skin just felt like all of the goosebumps woke up and I started shivering almost immediately. And then over the course of the day, the ice water from basins where the fish were stored and traveled dripped onto the floor into the boots that we were given. And meanwhile, my mother had to process filet after filet, removing the fins, the head, and make these perfect looking orange slabs of meat all as her hands and arms were shaking. And I remember going home and throwing ourselves under our comforters, shivering and seeing my mother's skin so purple, so all of the veins very much visible and thinking how lucky was I that I got to go to school and she had to do that every single day. That, that day, that first day was, was one that will stay with me forever. And to this day, I don't my mother's skin has has not recovered. She still is freezing all of the time. And I think now about the immigrants, the immigrant mothers and children, especially who are still in those places, maybe not a sushi factory, maybe some other type of plant 
enduring those kind of conditions just for the hope of making it out one day. Indeed, often when reading this book, it's difficult to sort of reconcile that we are we're reading a book about conditions in the modern era and not in like the 1910s or something. And one of those ways is, again, you talk incredibly vividly about just a pervasive, all-encompassing hunger, literal hunger that you live with in these years. It became very evident to me that we didn't have a lot of money. In China, whenever I was hungry, I just had to say I'm hungry or my stomach is gurgling and my mother would find food for me. And I was almost always eating. Looking back on photos of me in China, I was always holding a piece of food, usually a popsicle, but um, sometimes candied apples, things like that. And in America was the first time when I said I was hungry, my mother would say, oh, that's okay. That just means you're growing stronger. And whenever I suggested that I saw something in the window that I would like to eat, the window of a store that I would like to eat. My mother stopped offering to go in and buy it. And then I very quickly learned that our food budget was $20 a week for the three of us. And that I expressed hunger seemed to hurt my mother. It pained her. So I learned to conceal it from her because as all immigrant children and children do, they pick up on the emotional energy of their parents and they try to kind of meet some of those needs for their parents so that more resources can be devoted to them. That what I really wanted was for my parents to focus on me again and not be stressed about money and being found out and having to go to work. And one of the ways that I subconsciously did this, I mean, this was not a rational thought, but I told my mom that I was getting two full meals at school a day. By law, children under the poverty line were entitled to breakfast and lunch in school. I lived in Brooklyn, though, and I went to school in Chinatown, and the commute was long, especially after those sweatshop days. So I never got to school in time for breakfast, and the lunches were really not nutritious, although I didn't understand why I had what seemed to be a full tray of food, but I never felt full. And so I learned to deal and live with this feeling of hunger. Hunger was more constant in those years than anything else, perhaps in my life. In the mornings, I would spend my time staring at the classroom clock, counting down to lunch while just trying to minimize the stomach rumblings and trying not to start shaking, trying to bite off the cold sweat that always felt like it was on the verge of pouring out. And after lunch, my stomach kind of felt like it was in a civil war where the pockets of air were fighting with the newfound food. And it was not really comfortable as much as I'm not feeling like I'm about to go into shivers again. Um, Dinner, my mother, of course, knew that she was to provide and she really made wondrous dishes out of nothing. Carrot peels, watermelon rinds, things that probably most people didn't eat. She was able to make delicious and filling. And so nighttime was something that I always look forward to because it was the one time that I felt somewhat fortified in my stomach. And even though those conditions were temporary, I was lucky enough to have made it out of that. In recent years, and especially in in my time working on this book, I realize how long they have lived and stayed in my body. To this day, I can't throw out a single crumb of food. When I go to the supermarket, I have to curb my impulse to buy absolutely everything in sight to hoard food, really, just in case I'm hungry again. And 
when I am hungry and the few times that I am now in my privileged life, I don't know how to voice it. Often I don't notice, I don't let myself notice or my brain doesn't let me notice until it is too late. And it's just fascinating to me in the process of writing this book and living it and talking to people who have had similar experiences, how these childhood and early experiences inform how your body just learns to adopt and adapt and move around the world, even as an adult. And until you consciously think about where they are rooted, it can be hard to understand what really is going on in your life. Just to to expand on that a little, I mean, not just yourself as a child in the perspective of this book, but your parents as well, and other people living life as an undocumented migrant. What does that do you know, psychologically or, you know, existentially to a person looking over your shoulder all the time, always being scared. It puts you in flight or fight all the time, puts you in survival mode. You just learn to live in that mode. We were constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop, for boots on the ground to kick down our door, constantly looking over our shoulders. So our primary goal and my primary goal remained Uh, up until not too long from today, just to survive, not to thrive, not to reach for anything beyond what we absolutely needed to live. Staying small, not being noticed, that was primary. Being able to fit in by speaking perfect English, that was life or death. And then just not being noticed at all. So whenever I saw anybody in uniform, whether it was a sanitation worker or a police officer, I just learned to turn and run the other way because I didn't know who might ask what questions of me. And I just didn't have the answers or the documents to support what I needed to support to keep my parents safe. And that very much lived in our family and in our bones. After we became documented, my parents and I still didn't talk about those years. It was as if, if we didn't acknowledge it, there would be no risk. And the message very much was there was something inherently wrong with us, inherently wrong with the way we were living. We were quote unquote illegal. And if that were ever to be found out, whether it was during our undocumented years or after, then our survival would still be jeopardized. And even when I got my book deal last year, which was four years after I became a U.S. citizen, I felt terrified. I was scared to tell my parents. It took me six months to muster the courage of telling my parents. And the number one fear for all three of us, kind of counting down to this book release, is the government still going to come after us? Have I done finally done that thing by giving voice to our story and our experience? Have I finally brought about the disaster and the end of our lives and the deportation that we spent so many decades living in fear of? And and that fear has changed from one that was based in reality to one that is just something we are used to living with. And um, so long as you are living in fear, it can be nearly impossible to find fulfillment and enrichment and empowerment. So that to this day is something I continue to work on because I was programmed very much to function differently. To finish it off then, I mean, obviously, as I introduced you at the beginning, you're a graduate of Yale Law School and you're working as a lawyer. And I have seen yourself referred to as, you know, the epitome of the American dream, which, gosh, is missing the point of this book somewhat. Nonetheless, you are, as I said, you're, you know, you're working as a lawyer. And I'd like to, I'd like to talk about how your background 
informs your practice at work? I sort of described the type of law that you do in the introduction. What sort of insight do you think your background gives you into, into how you do your job? Sure. I went into law school. Really, I dreamed of becoming a lawyer at age nine. And the dream was that I had I'd read about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall, what they had done in the world of law. And I said, I wanted to do that for immigrants. And I strayed from that very much in the beginning of my legal career because I had too much unhealed trauma myself. Whenever I found myself doing immigration work, the work that I wanted to do, especially with regard to immigrant children, I just could not handle it. I felt the whole world was on my shoulders. I felt guilty for taking any sort of break from working and it was not sustainable. So I went into commercial litigation and corporate law for a while while healing myself, going into therapy, understanding what it was that I was doing, understanding that I was safe, having that message ingrained in me that I no longer needed to fight to survive. I was safe. And therefore I was safe to help others whose conditions were still very similar to the ones that I had faced. So now that I am back in that world, I am one so grateful that I have the privilege of having had to heal some of those open wounds, the scars I will have forever. But now that those open wounds are closed, I find myself more able to listen to my clients, understand what it is that they need and separate their needs from mine. As long as my needs were still raw and unmet, it was likely impossible for me to focus on those of my clients. But the second and perhaps more revelatory insight I have from being in this world is that very little has changed in the past two, three decades since I was in their shoes. I am just not yet seeing the systemic change that I had hoped our country, the beautiful country would be moving toward. The barriers that poor children, immigrant children, children with disabilities face so early in life, coupled with societal messaging that they don't matter, that they don't exist, that nobody cares and they're not going to succeed is nearly impossible to surmount. It creates these mountains in front of these small children who are not yet equipped to understand what is happening while they're living in households with parents who are simply too thin on resources to understand as well the systemic barriers that their children are confronting in that moment and need to continue to confront. So understanding what that does to someone emotionally, psychologically, maybe before they even have the vocabulary to rationalize and reason through it is very helpful in how you speak to clients, how you address their day-to-day needs. The other facet is that because part of my work does not directly tie into immigration, it's more education, pushing for education rights and understanding the fear and insecurity, both in terms of being able to stay in their homes, sometimes food insecurity that these families are dealing with means that I know what questions not to ask. I don't necessarily need to know the full story of a family's immigration status of everything they are dealing with to meet the needs that I am focused on in that moment. And this is important for two reasons. One is that I think people who don't understand the realities of these lives think, oh, why, what's wrong with asking that question? If you ask that question, you as a lawyer, you as a judge from a position of authority makes that client feel unsafe and that they cannot risk being seen by the law, even if it's an area of law that has nothing to do with immigration. And that means you're depriving them of that many more resources that they are really entitled to. 
The second is that you don't need to know and you, you don't need to meet and fix everything, which is something that I have a very hard time accepting that I cannot fix all of the problems in my clients' lives is something that's very difficult for me to swallow, but one that I think anyone fighting for social justice kind of needs to accept at some point that change is incremental, change is gradual. Sometimes it feels like the ball is moving backwards to move it forward further. And that is just something that activism uh, has to accept on some level. So yeah, just being able to understand the realities, emotional and otherwise, of immigrant families has really equipped and empowered me to give back to these communities. And again, I, I think that I have benefited from a lot of privilege. My parents were educated and that made all the difference in our times as undocumented and documented immigrants. And just being able to give back some of that privilege to communities that otherwise were not so lucky is what I was born really and called upon to do. So I've been talking to Chen Julie Wang about her book, Beautiful Country, a memoir of an undocumented childhood, which is out in the UK from Penguin Viking. Chen Julie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much, Neil. It was my pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.